Good morning. How is everyone going? I have had a morning. Who enjoyed the extra long mingle? I was on my way over from the east. They were stalling. They were stalling. But I'm here now. No one would have known. No one would have known. But it's been great. Would you believe out at the east this morning, they're getting out extra chairs. There's a dedication there. Uh, there's been a young lady that joined the community there who uh, has now reconnected with the Lord, is being baptised. So the baptism service going on there as well. Um, there is uh, the most we've ever had online this morning as well, uh, which is great. Um, and I don't know who's on camera today. Excellent job, Shem. People at home, thank you. Can we give him a hand? Doing a wonderful wonderful job um who here has ever enjoyed a uh, service online in our community it's great isn't it uh, all the things you can get away with when it's live in a room you cannot get away with when it's online but god is good we're going to open up our bibles when we go to the book of ruth we're starting a series today uh hopefully you got a text message during the week uh to read the book of ruth um that they say that you can read it in 12 minutes. Now, I don't know about you, but it took me about half an hour. So I lied to you on the text message. Um, but hopefully, who, who had a, an opportunity? Hopefully, there were many that were able to read it this week, which is really exciting. Now, this is what people say, theologians that have written when they're talking about the book of Ruth. I want to explain it. We're going to dive into it. We're going to spend four weeks looking at the four chapters and it's going to be incredible. Uh, but some theologians have written that Ruth is an intricately woven, magnificently crafted story. Another theologian writes, it's the most important and beautiful short story ever written. And another one is that Ruth was the loveliest and most complete work on a small scale ever written. To me, that sounds like a very, very strong recommendation. The text here is absolutely incredible. Uh, now, if you're un we're actually unsure who wrote uh, the book of Ruth. We, we don't know who the author is. Uh, you can make some theological guesses, but this is the reality. We actually don't know uh, who wrote it. We do know that it points to Jesus. Uh, it's all clear and it's written through. And it's written around the end of the period of Judges. Now, who knows that the Judges period of time for Israel was not a magnificent time in their history. In fact, it was a, a pretty poor time. They struggled with idolatry, with sin, with worshipping other gods, with being pulled away. In that period of time, they had no king. They had no ruler. And whenever there was an issue, they would call out to God and he would raise up a judge that would help them uh, deal and navigate with a specific issue. So when you think about it, one of the famous ones being Samson, you know, that he was, he was raised for a period of time to deal with the Philistines. Uh, there's another one, Gideon. Uh, these are judges that God rose. So at the end of this period of time is when the context is when this story uh, is about. It's about the end of that period of judges. Now we know that that period that had preceded was not good. And a lot of descriptions around it you would read in Judges 21-25. And it says this, In those days, Israel had no king. All people did 
whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Now, who knows that what's right in your eyes isn't necessarily what's right in God's eyes. So it wasn't necessarily a great period of time for them. However, the beauty of this moment is that the book of Ruth is written. And it's so much deeper than what you realize, which I pray that we unfold together during this series. But what I'll do is I'll give you a quick run through the book of Ruth. Um, it doesn't take long, but I just I, I want to paint the picture before we dive into chapter one this week. So Ruth starts, uh, the book of Ruth starts with a scene where there's a famine uh, in Jerusalem. So a family leaves Judah and they go to another place called Moab uh, in a hope of finding a better life. Okay, so there is a man named Amilelech or and his wife Naomi and their two sons. Now tragedy hits. Elimelech, he dies, leaving Naomi with her two sons. Then it says in the scripture about 10 years go by, uh, her sons take on wives that are local to Moab uh, which is a whole nother issue uh, we'll talk about. And about 10 years later, her two sons die. So now what's happening is you have three women, all childless widows. And in that culture at that time, not a great scenario to be in. So that's really chapter one, uh, the beginning, the, the prologue. Now what happens is Naomi hears that there is uh, food, effectively provision happening in Jerusalem. So she says, hey, I'm here in a foreign country. Uh, I don't have a husband. Uh, my sons have died. I've got no way of providing. I'm going to go back to my people, to my homeland, where there may be a greater opportunity for me to survive. So she's on the road. Her daughter-in-laws are with her. Um, she gives them an opportunity uh, to leave and go back to their mother's house in the hope that they could take on new husbands. Because what she's trying to do, Naomi, she's like, hey, I love you, you're my daughter-in-laws, but a better chance of your survival is if you go home, go to your mum's house, and I pray that God will bless you with another husband. And one of them, uh, Orpha, she, she goes and returns back to her mother. Uh, and then you hear this incredible faith statement uh, from Ruth that you've heard. And Ruth pretty much says, I'm sticking with you. She says, I'm staying with you, Naomi. Wherever you go, I'm going. Where you stay, I'm staying. Where you die, I'm going to die there too. I'm staying with you. So they end up going back to Jerusalem. Then what happens is they've got to survive. So Naomi sends Ruth out and she begins to gather grain in a field. And this field is owned by a guy who's painted all through this story as a man of integrity and a man of, of justice and a man that loves God. His name's Boaz. Now it turns out that Boaz... Uh, is a family redeemer. So in that culture, at that time, if your husband died, it was the responsibility of a close relative to redeem you. They could redeem the inheritance, but they also had to take on the wife or the widow, m marry them and bring them a child so that the family line could continue. And if the family line continued, your family line had been redeemed. It was the redeemer. This was Boaz. He wasn't the first in line, but he had an opportunity to be so. So you find out that by the grace of God, Ruth ends up in that field. It's owned by Boaz. He shows her this kindness. Uh, then all of a sudden in chapter three, there's this beautiful moment uh, that you need to understand is beautiful. It seems raunchy, but culturally it wasn't. Just so you're aware, a little bit of, you know, these days in a good story, there's you know, always something, ooh, what's going on there? And uh, what happens is it's really a humble approach 
Ruth goes to Boaz humbly and says, I trust you, I honour you, would you be my redeemer? Now there's obviously an analogy going on when you begin to look at it of what's happening. And then what happens is because Boaz is a man of integrity, he goes about the right order of doing things and then eventually he's able to redeem her. They have a child uh, and that is the end of the story. Now at a quick glance, a quick glance, it seems superficially just like a beautiful love story. There's a lady in distress. There's a great guy of character. He comes in as a noble hero and redeems the family. But the story is so much more than just a love story. When you look at this, it actually shows many things about who God is. It actually shows that God's sovereignty is threaded into day-to-day life. Do you know that God's sovereignty, His plan for your life, it, it covers everybody, it covers everything, but yet it cares about the intricate details of your life. It's threaded right down into everyday life. Uh, Ruth is a story of loyalty. But more importantly, it's God's faithfulness to those that are loyal to Him. We see in this, which we need to understand is very exciting, is that we actually see the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. You know, that's most of us here, uh, you know, so by praise God that that's there. And it shows the redeeming power of God at work through history. Now, you've got to understand, this is such a cool story. The more you look at it, the more I just think it's amazing. It starts saying it's at the end of the judges. It ends with the genealogy of of David. And you go, well, isn't that cool? Because it, it comes after the book of Judges. It comes before the first book of Samuel. I think to myself, wow, Boaz was really kind to a pagan woman. She rocks up Ruth. She's from Moab. Why are you kind to her? Because Boaz's mom was Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute found in Jericho. They have a son, Obed. In First Chronicles, it talks about that he was one of David's mighty men. It's amazing when you look at it, but it all comes down to, effectively, the arc of this thing is about God's redemption. It's God's redemption. And you know what? It actually points to God's redemption for us. Because if you think about it, Ruth, she finds rest. And she finds peace and she finds redemption through Boaz. They have a son, Obed. Naomi finds peace, restoration and redemption through Obed the son. Obed the son, if you look at his genealogy, actually points to King David. Israel finds peace and redemption under the kingship of David. And then David is in the lineage of Christ, the world, mankind finds peace and redemption through Jesus Christ. It's not just a love story. It's a story of redemption. God at work in the intricate details of everything to accomplish his plan of redemption for us all. This is what we look at when we look at the richness of what it is So get ready. We're going to spend four weeks in the book of Ruth and I pray that our hearts are drawn closer to Jesus because of his redemption, his redemptive power in our life. Can we pray for a minute? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are our God. 
I thank you that it's your redeeming love at work. It's threaded through scripture. We know it points to Jesus. And Father, we thank you for sending him. Lord, I pray that today we grow closer to you as we read your word together. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Why don't you open your Bibles? Let's go to Ruth chapter one. I'm gonna make my way through it. We're gonna read most of it today. Um, uh, when I say just chapter one, we're gonna lean into. And then I wanna finish with some observations that I believe can help us uh, today. So in Ruth chapter one, verse one to verse five, it's called the prologue. This is the setting of the scene. You've already heard about it because I explained that at the beginning, but there's a few things that I wanna lean into in that moment. So Ruth 1, verses 1 to 5, and it should be behind me on the screen. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. If you like to highlight in your Bible, highlight famine. We're going to come back to that moment. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were uh, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpha, and the other woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. They left Naomi alone with her two sons, without her two sons or her husband. Okay, the, the big thing here that I want us to look at really quickly is famine. There's a famine in the land. Now we know that throughout history, what God had promised Israel in this moment in history goes back to Deuteronomy 11 verses 13 to uh, 17, where it pretty much says this, obey what I've commanded you to do today. If you obey me, then I'm going to bring rain in the proper season in the early and late so that you can bring in your harvest. Then down to verse 17, it says, but if you turn away from God and worship other gods, then I'll close up the heavens and you won't last very long in the land. So there's a famine going on in the land. The context is because Israel was sinning again. The famine is there because of their lack of faithfulness to God. So what's interesting is we see initially in this period that, that Amalek decides, I'm going to take my family, I'm going to leave the land that God has promised me, and I'm going to go back to the old land of our enemies to try and seek a better life. Commentaries, they write that what was happening is he was trying to bring a human answer to a divine issue. Because the issue wasn't food. The issue was sin. But what happened in this period is he was going, well, in my humanness, I'm going to try and work out things for my family myself rather than leaning into the fact that there needs to be repentance and turning back to God and worshipping him and nothing else and removing things in those community. They're in famine. They've done the wrong thing. Isn't it interesting how this story begins with a person trying to bring human answers to divine issues? We need to understand, I see already in this context, turn to God first. Turn to God first. He is the redeemer. He, you're going to see that happen, but let's learn 
from, from Amalek, let's just turn to God quicker. Let's turn to God quicker. Let's fall on our knees. The tragedy has happened and then a decade later, she moves there, she loses her husband and then a decade later, she loses her two sons. Now, like I said, they're in complete despair now. They've got no way to provide. They've got no way to protect. And, and then what happens is Naomi now hears uh, that God is blessing uh, Judah once again. So now let's look at verses 6 down to, to 18. I'll work my way through it all, and then we're going to talk about it. So then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. We now know why because they've obviously turned back to God. So Naomi and her daughter-in-laws got ready to leave Moab and return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from that place where she had been living. They took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, go back to your mother's home. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness and, your, uh, and uh, to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to another son who could grow up and be your husband? She's talking about the redeemer, someone to redeem the family line there. Because obviously if it wasn't her sons, it could have been younger sons or family relatives. No, my daughters, Return to your parents' home, for I'm too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, Pilkey. Um, no, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised up his fist against me. Verse 14. And again, they all wept together. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, which is an interesting statement there. I'm releasing her back to paganism. I'm releasing her back there. Uh, you should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. Thanks, Pilkey. Excuse me. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me so severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. But Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, so she said nothing more. Okay, what's happening here is Naomi has really effectively heard that there's provision in Judah and she's released her daughter-in-laws. They've been faithful to her. There's clearly good relationship. You can see the emotion of the scene. It would be hard to say goodbye. So they broke down crying. And, and it's really interesting that I look at the fact that they left to go to Moab. So what happened is they've really, they've let disobedience take them away from God, but now they're actively going back in humility and repentance towards God. I think there's something there. I, I think we need to look at the fact that, that a Christian life is actually not passive. We actually have to work hard on our work with God. What happened is they've left seeking a human answer. They've gone to another place. Uh, they realized they shouldn't have left. 
she's now coming home humbly uh, and, and repentant. And she's saying, oh, I've got to get on the road. Uh, the daughters can go. In Second Peter 1, when we were looking at that, there is a prokope where it talks about, it says, you know, add to your faith uh, many things. Add, add to your faith patience. Add to your faith endurance. Add to your faith love. It says work hard at this in Second Peter. The key there being that you have to pursue God. It's not going to flow in. You actively have to move towards God. So she's saying that we're going home. Because God is blessing there and there will be something for us. And then we hear that powerful statement from Ruth where, where she says, I'm not going anywhere. One daughter's gone. She actually picked probably at the time the better option. But Ruth says, no, I'm staying with you. It's a powerful statement. We'll return to it in a minute. And then the last uh, three verses for this week, Ruth 19 to 22, chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The woman asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made my life bitter, or my life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi? Which really, it means pleasant. When the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth and the young, Moabite, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. She's returned home, broken, humbled, disappointed, but they're home. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I've had a bitter life. So this is the tragedy of the story. This is the low point that has been set up. She's left the land. She's lost her family. She's lost her boys. She's lost now a daughter-in-law. She's returned home with nothing. No real prospects for the future. A pagan daughter-in-law that's now committed her faith. Uh, to God, to Yahweh, this is what she has. She has two childless widows in a town that she used to, I'm bitter, I'm, I've had a bitter life. God God has raised his fist against me. It doesn't look good. This is, this is, the, this is the context of chapter one. So where do I find application for our community today? If you're writing notes, I think out of chapter one, one of the things we can look at is extreme loyalty. So here's the statement Ruth makes. Don't ask me to leave you and return back. Where you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. It is a full commitment. It's all in. This story is about God's redeeming love and power for those that are loyal to him. And a pagan Gentile woman is declaring her all-in desire to serve her mother-in-law and follow her God. What would that have actually meant to her? She's a Moabite woman saying, 
I'm coming with you. Now in Numbers 25, let me explain to you how, how well she would have been received in that community. Numbers 25, it says that while the Israelites were in Shittim, a man began to indulge in, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. They, inv- they invited them to sacrifices with their God and turned them away. So effectively, every mother that saw that woman was like, you're one of them women. If you're a mum, I'm sure that you've thought about that if you've had sons. It's like, I don't know about you. I've heard about people like you. So I don't want my son to spend time with you. I really don't want my daughter to spend time with you. So she's already, when she's saying to to Naomi, I'm coming with you already, she knows she's not going to be popular in that setting. She was committed even though the outlook wasn't great. Naomi had no way of providing for her. There wasn't anything that she had that was a sales pitch, come with me, I've got this. Naomi's saying, I'm broken, I've got nothing, I'm returning home to be poor, but at least I'm poor with my people. So one, now Ruth is saying, I'm not going to be popular socially. Two, she's saying, there's actually not really an upside to following you from a blessing point of view. Where did Ruth meet her husband? In Moab. This was the town, place she grew up in. This is where she met her husband. This is where she buried her husband. So now, I'm not going to be popular. There's actually no financial prospects and I'm leaving my family. But yet, she's all in. There is no compartment of her life that she wasn't fully committed to serving her mother-in-law and making her God my God. In this moment, Ruth is letting go of pagan culture. She's taking on the culture of a follower of Yahweh. No matter how hard it gets, I'm all in whatever it takes. Extreme loyalty. Extreme loyalty. As I pondered and looked at this scripture and looked at the loyalty of Ruth, the question I ask myself and I ask you today is, are there things that we need to let go of in order to follow God more loyally? Are your loyalties split? Are there things that you have in your life that if you were to ponder in the privacy of your heart with the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you go, hey, that my loyalty might be stronger there than it should be. She says, where you go, where you live, your people, your God, I'm going to die where you die. No compartment of her life. So how do we then as believers begin to mature our loyalty for Christ? What, What does that look like? Loyalty is a strong feeling of support or allegiance to something. So because of my allegiance and my loyalty to Christ, every other decision of my life needs to line up from that Jesus is number one. Who agrees with that? So how do we do that? Well, I think there's two principles uh, that we can look at just in the words of Ruth. She says, where you go and where you live. This to me talks about making a Christ-centered, loyal decision about the environments you'll put yourself in. Where you go and where you live points to your environments. Are you putting yourself in environments? Am I putting myself in environments that fosters my loyalty to Jesus? Because environment is going to help you grow. 
environments like church, environments like connect groups. These are places where you are putting yourself in an environment where you can go and you can live. She then goes on to say, and your, my, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. That also points to community. Environments and community can help your loyalty to God. Ruth was loyal. And God looks to use people of loyalty. God will redeem those that are loyal to him. Extravagant loyalty, all in loyalty, extreme loyalty. That's what I see in chapter one. I want to be like that for Jesus. I think the second thing I look at here is I see a constant example. Now, really, when we look at this, I see the power of a testimony. Stay with me for a minute. Naomi in the present situation is like, I'm bitter. My life's bitter. My life hasn't worked out that well for me. I've got no prospects, but yet Ruth is all in. Because it wasn't from just that moment. It was the decade prior as a mother-in-law that she had been such a constant example that when it came time to choose, Ruth was ready because of the constant example she had been. I started pondering. I feel that the enemy tries to think that one poor response in your life disqualifies a life of consistency. It doesn't. You know, I remember when I was a younger man on staff at this church. Some of you may know this story. We were moving warehouses. So I had hired a skip and we had filled the skip. And the guy comes along and was so rude to Pastor Nick. He was so rude. And I was like, I don't know what happened in that moment, but I was triggered. And I was with another guy in our community. He was an intern at the time. His name's Gene Herod. He bears witness to my stupidity. So I said to Pastor Nick, hey, Pastor Nick, I think you should go for a walk. He's like, what do you mean? I said, just go for a walk. He goes, what do you mean? I said, just get out of here for a minute, please, Pastor. Just leave. Now he left, and I am not proud of my response. Not proud. I won't go into details because I don't want you to look at me poorly, but Gene said, I will never mess with you ever. Now, if you were to ask Gene, tell me about Charles, he would say, I believe that I am a person of peace. I am a person of patience because consistently over our life, over the last many years we've had together, that has been the frame of my consistency. Yeah, there was one example where I, I messed it up and I had to apologize to God and, and um, I actually didn't find that guy, but God knows that I am sorry. But it was a one time, a single response doesn't disqualify a life of consistency. Naomi must have been such an example that Ruth was willing to go all in despite the current situation. You've got to understand, don't let your mistakes disqualify you. Remain consistent, remain passionate, keep going for God. Because when the dust settles, it was Naomi's example that was the loudest testimony to Ruth. It was like, there's something, Ruth, about you that, that where you go, I'm going to go. And clearly, your God that I've heard about is going to be my God. 
because I need to be where you are because you've been such an example in my life. That's a testimony to the goodness of God. We begin to see the redeeming ark unfold, but how do we be more consistent as believers? I felt these things come to me as I prayed and pondered on it. Follow through. Matthew 5.37 says, just say a simple yes and I will or no, I won't. Anything beyond that is from the evil one. How do you be consistent? Just follow through with what you say. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just be simple. And that will help consistency because as you do that, you're not going to commit to things you can't follow through. Understand why will help your consistency. I always refer back to Psalm 115.1 where it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. It's actually about Jesus. It's not about us. Let your yes be yes. That will help your consistency. Remember why you're doing it. It's to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus and accountability. Community, iron sharpens iron. You want to be ready. You want to be better. You want to be more consistent. Get people around you that will help you to be consistent. Jared, I might have you join me. I think finally, do you know what I learned from the book of Ruth in verse 1. And I think this is important for some people to get a hold of. Naomi wanted to be called Mara, which means bitterness, where her name actually means pleasant. And what we can learn in God's redemptive ark is that bitterness is not the end of the story. There's actually the whole display of God's goodness about to unfold. And what I learned from Ruth chapter 1 is that if there is still bitterness right now, we have to understand this isn't a prosperity message. We will go through hard times. Look at what Ruth had to endure. But what I know is that when you have Jesus, bitterness is never the end of the story. In Psalm 126 verse 5, it says, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. So the process of reaping in joy has to start with sowing in tears. That's a process. That means your tears can be fruitful. Bitterness is never the end of the story. Listen, we may have defeat. We may have hard times. But with Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, we will win. Bitterness is never the end of the story. a bitter place today. I don't know your story. I want to tell you right now. I don't know what's happening in everyone's life, but I feel the word of the Lord for you is this. Bitterness is not the end of the story. Can we all stand for a moment? I might just invite Chloe if you grab your mic and head up. So there's three things, three principles when we look at the book, the the book, the book, it just went English for a moment. The book of Ruth. We're going to see what God's going to do. It's going to unfold. It's going to be beautiful. It's chapter one. The three things I want us to take home with is, I want you to think about this week and 
Mark, may bring the, the lights down. Where's your loyalty? Where's your loyalty, honestly? Like my journey, very simply, uh, you know, and you're always trying to critique things in your life. I think I became too obsessed with the Essendon Football Club. Do you know, I worked out discussing this morning. I think I prayed for them from this pulpit about a year in a row every service. And when they'd lose, it would ruin me for three days. So 50% of the last 15 years of my life, I've been depressed. But what happened is last year, when all that stuff went down, I realized, hey, there's a little bit too much of a focus on that in my life. Now, I'm not saying football's a bad thing. I love football. Totally fun to watch. It's better than the other junk, a lot of junk out there. You know what I mean? It's manly and whatever you need to know about it, it's great. But it's not better than Jesus. I'm just being honest. And in my life, I realized, hey, I think I care a little bit too much. My allegiance needs to be with Jesus. I'm going to say a few things that may, that may be hard for some people to handle. But your loyalty and your passion should be with Christ even before your family. Now, family first means God first. Then you will treat them the way you should treat them. There are people here that maybe your loyalty is with your workplace rather than with God. But if God is your number one, then you want to provide for your family because your family is number two and therefore that will line up. There are some people that your loyalty is associated with your outcome. If I'm winning, I'm going to be loyal. But if times are hard, I'm going to question that loyalty. Ruth had this extreme loyalty. It's all in. It's every area. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I'm going to die. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you live, I will live. Why? Because there was no area of her life that would compromise her loyalty. This is what happened with Jesus. Jesus didn't hold on to heaven as something he needed to hold on to. He would rather hold on to you. So he left heaven out of his loyalty and love for the Father and obedience and out of love for you. The loyalty was not questioned and ours should be the same. If somebody was to analyse your life and my life with your time, does your time point loyalty to Jesus? We need to be a church. We are living in a time where we need to be extreme about our allegiance to Jesus Christ. The things that you put into the Spirit, the things that you put into your mind, the places you position yourself, where you go, loyalty needs to be Christ number one. Now, there is no uh, condemnation coming from my heart, but I pray that if there needs to be conviction of the Holy Spirit, when you preach these things, you have to live these things. How's your loyalty? Has it been where it needs to be? Because I pray for a community full of people like Ruth. Imagine what God would do with that. In fact, our community, your family, your career, your business, your workplace needs you to have that level of loyalty for Jesus. Loyalty, how's your loyalty? 
actually feel on the other side, there are people that think they're not a great example when they actually are. There are people here today, I felt the Lord tell me that you've had one thing where you were like, that wasn't my best and you've let that become who you are. Stop it. You're a child of God. You have integrity. You're made righteous through faith. Therefore, you are a righteous person. Don't let a life of consistency be outweighed by one mistake. Repent, humble yourself, come back to God. That's what Naomi was doing. She said, whoa, we ended up in the wrong place. I just need to get where God is. I just need to get where God is providing. Your loyalty, and you are an example. And the the third thing that I spoke into is that there are some people that feel bitterness is their story. Bitterness, that's my story. Call me Mara. My life's not pleasant. In fact, I feel like God has raised his fist against me. The word of the Lord for you is your story's not done. Your story's not done. So with every eye closed, we're going to do a generic response. If you feel you need to align your loyalties, in a moment I want you to raise your hand. If you feel that you've labelled yourself with one bad example, that's not the consistency of your life and you need to let that go. Oh, I messed that up. You need to accept God's forgiveness. I need you to raise your hands. And the third one, if you feel that you have determined that bitterness is your story and you want to give that to God and go, no, it's not the end of my story. God is still at work. God is still at play. So if that's you, On the count of three, if you're one of those, I want you to lift your hands very high and we're going to begin to sing something. We're going to worship God in a moment. So start straight away. You can even begin to sing. On three, if you're one of those areas, loyalty, consistent example or bitterness, why don't you lift your hand now? Go over and lift your hand high. Lift your hand high.